Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? The economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David. It's the Thursday podcast this week. Hope all is going well and you're looking forward to Christmas. Amazing. It's actually next week. You know the score with this podcast, we try to make economics more comprehensible, a little bit more germane to your life, and a little bit more relevant. And God knows, there's a lot of economics going on. How are you, Ed? I'm very good. Uh, good old week. But come here, let's get stuck into this one. I got a few questions in Oh yes. Patreon. Oh, yes. Uh, so the first one is from Nathan O'Sullivan. I need a question on, do you remember the our interview with Andy Haldane? Yep the chief economist of the Bank of England. So Andy was talking about, it was a weird stapling together of two incongruous things yes. on the balance sheet. Yes, this is about banking and yes. what's the future, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Nathan is asking, so if banks were to be broken up in the future, what might be an alternative to having savings and loans on the same balance sheet? As I understand it, a bank needs to have a certain amount of other people's cash in order to lend out multiples of that and create its assets. So Nathan's question is, have you any suggestions on where loans might come from, if not from multiples of the savings lodged in the banks? Okay, it's a very interesting, in, it's a very interesting question. Nathan, thank you very much. Um, and by the way, if you do want to ask questions, just have a look at us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Nathan, I'm going to be blunt here, and I think it's really it's 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 been fascinating for me. What you're talking about is a traditional way in which banking is taught in economics courses, and it's completely wrong. Okay, it's about where money comes from, who creates it. So economists and economic courses teach the following idea: that there are savings. And those savings go into the banks. And then the banks reckon that only about 10% of people will want to withdraw their savings at any one time. And therefore, they can lend out multiples of those savings, i.e. nine times. And it's called the multiplier. That is a completely fallacious understanding of how money works. And Nathan, I'm glad you've asked the question because it goes to the root of what we're trying to do in this podcast, which is to take some of mainstream economics and say, that's not how it works. How it actually happens is that banks create loans themselves with no reference to their savings, okay? So basically, if you go into the bank, Nathan, you say, I want to buy, I don't know, a new car, and I want a loan of 10 grand. That money didn't exist before you came in and asked for it. 
And what the bank does is it just creates the loan with no reference to any link to the amount of savings or deposits or anything in the bank's vaults. We have been led to believe that banks basically have a big pool of money in the vault and that's it. John savings, John saves 100 quid. David wants to borrow 100 quid. The bank goes in, dips into John's 100 quid, gives it to David and then says, I will charge you 5%, David. That's okay, a fiver I'll make every year. I'll only give John 1% in his loan and the bank makes 4% in the middle. That's what we understand. That's actually not how banking works these days. How banking works these days is it creates the loans themselves. Now, this is why money supply has gone out of control all over the world, because there is no, and this is very strange to say, there is no limit to the amount of money a commercial bank can actually print and create. Really? So, yeah, this is, uh, if you look at what's happening in new monetary theory, it's becoming much more applicable to how the actual monetary economy works. So, Nathan... We're going to have to go back and do Banking 101 at some stage. But it's very, very interesting. I am studying a lot of this stuff right at the moment for a project I'm involved in. And it's uh, fascinating. If you want to read a nice ready reckoner on all this, a book called The Philosophy of Money, written by Eric Lonergan, oh. who is the guy who wrote the book with our next guest, Mark Blythe. Excellent. Isn't that a lovely little segue? But it was almost professional. Was almost <laughs> <laughs> Can I get to one question just before we get to Mark yeah. Bly? Because that's a brilliant interview. Got another question relating to Tuesday's podcast that we did on the discussion on France and the future of the EU and all that kind of stuff. So Tommy Horkin writes in and says, really interesting discussion, lads. Love the podcast. He's Um, obviously a man of great taste. He is, I'm sure he is. Very, very wise man. But he says, do you have a time frame for what you were talking about? Oh, that's a good question. That's the idea is that we were talking about, just to give you a little bit of a memory jog there from Tuesday, we were talking about Macron wanted to be president of Europe and the French now being in the driving seat and having to, we need to understand France much more than ever before. My sense is, and again, we come back to the Euro that events, Tommy, will dictate the pace. And the problem with events is nobody has a clue what's coming around the corner. So this thing could happen very quickly. Jesus. <laughs> hey, nice. So keep the questions coming. Thanks, Emil, for all the questions. And if you want to fire in some more questions, see us on patreon.com forward slash Dave Mark Williams. So, Mac... What's up this week? What's up well, today? What we're doing is remember last on Tuesday we broke Brexit down. Yeah. Right? We said, okay, what is the European impact of Brexit? Yeah. Park the, the, the British side of things and say, what chain of events have now been triggered by this and where is that leading to? Yeah. That was Europe. Let's swivel around now and look at Britain and Ireland and the consequences of Brexit. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. okay. Let's go straight to Scotland because it's very clear that the most immediate political consequence of Brexit is going to be yet more motivation in Scotland to break away and go on the road. And I can't think of anyone better to discuss this with. Mm-hmm. Mark yeah. Blythe, Professor of Political Economy at Brown. One of the good guys, another Kilconomics recidivist. He's on the line. Actually, speaking, let's, let's kick off. Before we just, 
What's it this your conversion to Scottish nationalism? By, by default, I, I finally just had enough. I re two things happened. Well, three things. Uh, I read a, an, an op-ed by one of the SNP people who isn't mad. Um, who, I think you know him, uh, Andrew Wilson. I know, know the name. Right. I don't know him well, but go on. Right. So he done Charlotte Street Partners. I mean, he's not an arse. And he basically wrote this op-ed where he said, honestly, we're kind of just sitting here living off of transfers. And the major argument that people have is, if you stop the transfers, we'll all die. In other words, the entire country's on the fucking dole. I mean, yep. really? This is it? This is this is the future, right? The second thing was basically just watching the British government be the British government for the past six years and just going, <laughs> for fuck's sake. I mean, really? <laughs> just no, right? And, you know, Boris and the rest of these clowns, right? And then the third one was I read this book, which you have to do and you've got to get the guy on your show, Brett Christopher's uh, book, Rontier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy? About Britain. And he basically did the corporate balance sheets of all the sec major sectors of the economy and basically discovered that the entire country lives off rents. That's why there's no productivity growth. That's why there's no innovation. That's why there's no sort of increase in standard of living. Because the bigger companies are things like Concentra. They get a 10-year contract for $25 billion to fuck up public services. Right? Uh, the BBC, it, it doesn't own its own towers. Some one company owns all the transmission towers. And then everybody has to pay them rents. So everybody's paying everybody else rents. Nobody's actually making anything. Now this right? let's let's because we're 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 on air now, my man. We're on air. We're always we're always recording. And I want to I want to call like Mark. I want to talk about that because that this is a fascinating area. The idea of the renter economy because this is something that, is. this is something that I see in Ireland all the time. And had we not uh, the largesse of the multinationals. Uh, I suspect this country would be extremely uh, aligned to that renter idea. And you can argue the multinationals are only here because they're getting a rent too, which is a tax break. But, right. But, but, but as you have argued, right, the way that small com small countries compete is on taxes because they can't do it on scale. Precisely. So right? you can't something. generate their own demand. So you, either you're basically, you've got to be either a massive exporter or an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur for taxes. Exactly. And we've chosen the latter. Now let's talk to this the idea about the renter economy, because it is fascinating. And it's also the way in which a lot of, you know, early 21st century Western economies have gone. Mm -hmm. Explain it to Certainly me. Is. Explain it to me. So the way that Brett argues this, it's a great book, but the way he essentially argues this is that sort of financialization, neoliberalism, all the stuff that we talk about, the way that we've been running the world for the past 30 years, it kind of sums to a rentier economy where the control of assets getting something that somebody else needs that you can charge them for a fee, putting legal barriers up to it, intellectual property rights, evergreening patents, all this sort of stuff. Think what pharma does, right? Take a molecule, tweak it, another 20 years of, of patents, right? Uh, think about Apple and Samsung for 10 years just suing each other over who owns what bit of tech because once you've got it, everybody else has to license it from you, right? So there are incredible incentives. But what he points out is the way this runs through all these sectors of the economy you never think of. Brilliant example of this. Hotels. So Hilton, take Hilton. Hilton isn't really a hotel chain. It's a brand. It's like Nike. And they own very, very few buildings worldwide. I think it's about 20 buildings. And what happens is investors get together, real, invest, real estate investment trusts take their cash, and they put together a board, and then they go buy or rent buildings. They then rent the badge. The badge goes on. So you now know it's a safe one. It's a Hilton. You're fine. Get in there. Then all the stuff in the hotel gets subcontracted. 
So you've got 12 different firms working in this building that is leased by another company that owns the badge that puts it on the front. Now, how do you make money out of this? You squeeze labor as much as possible because there's no other way of making profit. Nobody's going there because like, oh, David, have you tried the beds at the Hilton? They're amazing. You'll pay 50 bucks more, right? That's not it. So you get cleaning down to a fine art where people are monitored digitally to make sure they spend the minimum amount of time in a room so they do the maximum coverage, right? You get your security guys through a firm that also does the security for prisons, right? Because they happen to be cheap because they're doing the whole thing on mass. And everybody subcontracts to everybody else. Fascinating thing in the book, McDonald's in the United Kingdom makes most of its money not from the burgers or the franchise fees, but from the rent payments and mortgage payments that they get from their franchisees because they build you the restaurant. Then you have to pay for it. So they make more money off of you paying for the building than they do off of selling you the burgers. It's almost as if the burgers is a sideshow to get you to buy the building. That's extraordinary. Let's, let's, let's explore this a little because, again, Mark, lots and lots and lots of people okay, are trying to put together this bizarre jigsaw called the world in 2020, 2021. They're looking at politics, which is only really a scream from the public every four or five years to say, I either like this or I don't, okay? And that scream can be dramatic and theatrical and yada, yada, but that's all it is. It's a scream, okay? And then we're trying to look at the economy. We're trying to look at COVID. We're also trying to look at why so many people to your book's idea, feel angry, feel displaced, feel put out. And then we think, okay, but don't we have a system that is trying to encourage the free enterprise, try to encourage people to express themselves, to innovate, etc.? Because we default to the idea that our system is trying to get the best out of us. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is, whoa, hold your horses. Think again. Yeah, absolutely. The book was a real revelation for me because I just didn't think in this way. And then it explains so much. I mean, if you think about Brexit, one of the real puzzles of Brexit is who the hell is in favor of this? Right? A simple way of understanding politics is, you know, people vote for it. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not, right? But another way is producer groups. Who are the most important people in the economy? Do you think, for example, that the city of London might have a big say over policy? You think so? Absolutely. If you're in Germany, if you're in Germany do you think the, the car industry might have the ear of the chancellor? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty reasonable. Who's lobbying for Brexit? Nobody. But it kind of makes sense in a country where you make a hell of a lot of your profit internally in your economy and externally through similar schemes if you're just a rentier. Because it doesn't really matter if you're in the EU or not. Because I make all my money renting out mobile phone towers. I make all of my money squeezing labor in hotels. I make all of my money doing tax dodges by being a mining company that does no mining in Britain, but does mining across the rest of the world. So it's all about the protection of these property rights and the protection of these intellectual property rights and barriers to entry and sort of oligopoly. Yeah. And it just leads to an economy. But what's the incentive for these firms to do innovation? None. What's the incentive for these firms to really give a shit about labor and wages? None. And they're making super profits. If you're one of these companies like Concentra that runs large parts so, of just hold public me, hold, Let me hold you there, Mark. So what is, because I've heard the name Concentra, right? But I don't know what it is. What is it? Just explain to me, and then we can... We can... Nobody knew what it was until it collapsed. Yes. It was, it was the... a multi-billion dollar company that did everything from food services from schools to security for prison to cleaning the sewers in Wolverhampton. I'm not sure if they did exactly those things, but basically they do all that sort of stuff. And it's one of these companies that exists purely as a legal creation, right? 
teams of lawyers put these things together and put, bolt the company together. And then they basically bid for these contracts from the government. And the most valued thing is the guy in the company that can actually write these contracts and get these 10-year, multi-billion dollar contracts. And then they are the one that is the service provider that does the stuff that the state used to do. And guess what? They do it crappily. And they've written the contract in such a way that it's bulletproof. And if they collapse, they're not liable for it. And if they don't provide the services, it's really hard to do anything about it. What a great gig for making cash. And now, 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 Mark, how did this come about? Let's plot this because... A lot of people here in Ireland are looking at, so for example, a big, big issue here. Again, it's very local. And when we get into Scottish nationalism, this is the sort of stuff you guys will be talking about. You know, who builds the, ch the children's hospital? At what price? Who delivers it? And right. then how in God's name did that go over budget? These are the sort of things that your average punter is thinking about. So let's, I want to get there, but I want to, I want, I want to start by teasing out how these large subcontracting companies, put together by lawyers, bolted together, tax advantages, I'm sure. How did they come about? What happened? So a great book, if you want to get into this stuff, is uh, Katerina Pistor's book, The Code of Capital. Uh, and, but what she talks about is essentially how the law creates money. So if you think about you know, financial markets, we think about financial markets as flows of cash. They're also flows of contracts. These things that, you know, power the world economy that people hear about that nobody quite understands called derivatives contracts, they're all legal documents, right? I specify that I will pay this interest rate and you will pay this interest rate and we will swap it, etc. So it's all codification by the law that makes it possible. Add to this intellectual property rights. I own this one thing and if you want to use it and you have to use it, then you need to pay me a fee. It just creates an incredible incentive for an industry to pop up to provide the services that make it possible to make these firms. But behind it all was the sort of the, the, the thing of the 1980s and 1990s, privatization of public assets. Right? So if you think about it, what you've got is a whole bunch of assets that don't, aren't really owned by anyone. And we can give them back to the private sector because they're more efficient. Well, anybody who's ever been on a train in the United Kingdom knows how utterly laughable that one is. But we've been doing it for 40 years. Right? And even when the companies fail, even when the company that has the contract to run the rails, to keep the rails going, never mind keep the trains going, just keep the rails going, utterly fails, the state steps in, takes it again, the taxpayer pays for it, and then we give it out to another bunch of crooks. I mean, it's just incredible. Now, when I look at, for example, the impact or the influence now, let's say the big four, right? You know, professional services providers. Uh, you know, we know who they are. They are very deep in the state We will system. never speak their name. We will never <laughs> speak their name, but they uh, they certainly power property prices in South Dublin exclusively. And without them, property prices would collapse around here. But so these big four, and they're very deep, and they're lawyers, and they're consultants, and they're this, that, and the other. And the government says, oh, we need to have, I don't know, a new motorway system. Oh, well, let's outsource that to one of the big four. They'll tell us. Right at the moment, for example, almost everything in Ireland, you know, the vaccine is rolled out. Who tells us where to roll out? One of the big four, not the government. Okay, right. and then Nefed, our, our 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 medical council says, well, we were talking to such and such, and they're going to say that's the price, and this way. So suddenly, all those big parts of government are outsourced to companies mm. that have beautiful offices in Dublin, lots of glass, oh, yeah. lots of chrome, lots of good expense accounts, all that stuff. But that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, in the, when I, I've been in, as you know, I've been in the United States for a long time. I used to live in Baltimore. The great thing uh, is, from your accent, you wouldn't. I, I, what you I love about I, you. I'm, actually, I'm really from, I'm actually from Milwaukee, and I just discovered that I got a lot more attention if I spoke like this. So I've just, I've been, I've been faking it for years. But putting that to one side, um, they built a new baseball stadium in the southern part of Washington, D.C., uh, about 10, 15 years ago. And I finally went to the ballpark. And on the way there, there's this beautiful new development of all these plexiglass offices. It's like all of a sudden, I was like, who's here? So I went for a walk and I had a look. Every single one of them were consultancy companies that only exist because we give away contracts from the Pentagon. Precisely. Kellogg, Brown and Root, all this. People you've never heard of, who literally their only reason for having this giant building with multi-billion dollars coming through the door is because what we used to do in the army, we now give to them, right? So a great example of this, an ex-student of mine told me this. She used to be in the U.S. military and intelligence corps, and she was in Bosnia back in the day. Now, when the Americans moved into Bosnia, they had to build a camp. So they put down the fence, and they dig the latrines, and they get the basic infrastructure. What was the first thing that they put in there as essential supplies? McDonald's. A Burger King franchise. <laughs> I got it. Okay. It was. Yeah. And, oh, and the key thing, it was a franchise. Yeah, so somebody was actually this paying the rent. This runs all the way through. Okay, so let's... uh, We started with you getting attracted to or converted to Scottish nationalism, right? By default. By default. By by default. But there is an enormous, and I always say this in in Ireland, enormous opportunity to fix your own house when you have a bond market means that you can actually raise your own money, when you raise your own flag, when you actually become what I would call a normal adult country. I've always thought a country without a bond market isn't an adult country because you're, as you said, you're you're waiting for transfers from the from the rest of the UK. What could you see done in Scotland? Because we're talking around Brexit, but this is more interesting than than no deal or this deal Brexit. Yeah. What could you see doing in Scotland that would bring it away from the renter economy and create something else? Great question. Um, there's a lot of possibilities. The one thing it won't be is oil. The advantage that you do have is you've got a small economy with a relatively small population. It rains all the time. That's a pretty good one. You know why? Because the south of England is running out of water. So you can put pipelines straight down there and do that. But these are fanciful schemes. I mean, ultimately, what is it you need to do? The big thing is, of course, the currency question. You're absolutely right. It's currency, bond market, debt, being a grown-up country. How do you get there? Well, if you're an MMT fan, it's dead easy. You just print a new thing called the Mick Kilt and you stuff it in the banks and everything will be fine the next day. Um, I think you can get away with that sort of stuff if you're the United States and you've got the global reserve asset and everybody else basically has to hold it and deal with it. If you're a small economy, Ireland's a good example of this, how come you guys ended up joining the euro? Because it was horrible trying to manage that exchange rate all the time when you're a small open economy. Right, tiny little moves in the world economy can blow your currency up and down. And if you're heavily dependent on imports and exports, that's a screaming nightmare. So the current account constraint, as economists call it, is a really big deal for small open economies. So what does Scotland do? It's going to have to use the pound for a transitional stage. But then it should be completely open about from day one, this is transitional. This is perhaps a three-year period. You give everybody as investors a chance to adjust their expectations, look at the books, look at the assets, look at the liabilities. And then you say, we're going to get our own currency and we're going to phase it in in three years. How are we going to do that? We're going to float some debt. 
we're going to try it, see what it, see what interest rate we'd have to pay if we did this. And in the current environment, when basically any OECD country can borrow 10 to 15 years at a negative real rate, it shouldn't be that much of a big deal. So this is essentially how do you phase a transition in such a way that you don't get capital flight out of the country and you maintain investor confidence and you create a positive buzz about the place so people actually want to invest in it and want to stay there. It's not that difficult to imagine how to do that. No, and the other thing, what I've, what I've looked at, uh, if you look at Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland, what you see, uh, and, I've, and, and I put the north of England and large swathes of the, of, the, of the middle of England in this, what you basically see is the progressive emasculation of the innovative power of these regions because mm-hmm. they, nobody's had to do it. They haven't even had to figure out, you know, what sort of tax regime do we have? How do we get investment in? Totally. How do we... So, but once you actually put that constraint in front of people, it can actually be very energizing because you can do I, stuff yourselves. Yeah. No, no, we were talking about this earlier, so I don't know if it was captured before we, we started recording. But the whole country lives off the dole generated by London. And, you know, technically what you're looking at is like, you know, GDP, right, gross domestic product. The underlying component that's called GVA, gross value added, right? Which bit adds value so you can flog it further down the chain, Right. It used to be that outside of London, there was outside of London, there was a wee bit around Manchester and there was Scotland, was what's called GVA positive. For the past decade, it's been London and nothing else. The rest of the country literally lives off transfers. It's kind of like the world's worst universal basic income experiment. Because <laughs> no, there's I, no I agree with you completely. Obligations and it's shit and you don't have any real autonomy and you can't do anything with it. But there you go, that's that. Why would anybody want to stay in that environment? I love this. This is like the conversation between Spud and Renton in Train Spotting, except with economics. Do you remember the original <laughs> conversation? Which, which, which one am I? Well, you're you're clearly Rent. <laughs> you're Rent. I'm, I'm Spud. <laughs> but it's like that idea of the Scots realizing, shit, we've been conned for years. Well, you can, and you've conned yourself. But for me, I mean, let me clarify this, right? This is not anything that's born out of, ah, was like us, was the bagpipes bollocks, right? It's just simply, the British economy is a joke, right? Slowly but surely, it's been revealed to be a giant financial entrepot that clears euros. That might not be lasting much longer. Um, The rest of the country is GVA negative. Everybody lives off of transfers. And the bits of the economy that make money are these rentier, rentier sectors that basically add no value, don't do innovation, and just care about sweating assets and getting fees. This is not good. You do not want to be attached to this for the long term. And if you can get out, get out now. When I listen to Nicola Sturgeon, she talks about Denmark, Norway, Sweden, small openings. She talks about Ireland a lot, a lot as well. But this idea that the Scots could actually just take the blueprint of Denmark and over 20 or 30 years, begin to become that sort of society. A runner? Why not? Why not? I mean, really, it's everybody needs a goal. It's an achievable goal. I mean, what you have in Denmark is one of the most progressive countries in the world. Something I particularly admire about it is the fact that it has a climate law that says that we've got these targets. It doesn't matter who comes to power. It doesn't matter what your political party is. It doesn't matter how you do it. You still have to meet the targets. And everybody agreed to that. So and that's, a, that's intergenerational positive policy making. And it's always small open economies that do this stuff for a very simple reason. You can't stick the cost somewhere else. There's nowhere else. There's no, you can't do America. 
you can't blame it on the minorities. You can't blame it on the Southerners. You can't blame it on the elites. You can't blame it on this, that, and the next thing. You can't divide and push the cost somewhere else. There's nowhere to put the cost. Everybody shares in the adjustment burden. So either you get it right or it hurts everybody. Don't, don't, don't tell us we know all about this. And, uh, totally. and the cost of failure is very, very high. It's very, very high. But when you get it right, you can actually Absolutely. go through extraordinary growth periods. Let's, let's just conclude by going back to the, sort of the news and the Brexit and the no deal. What went through your head when you saw Johnson in the last 24 hours as the prime minister of the country that you uh, come from still? I know it's 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 truly remarkable. I mean, just I just look at someone who's a f- just an opportunist. I mean, we know the story about when he was working for the Spectator. He had two essays, one for why he was against Brexit and one for why he was for Brexit. And he was like, "Which one am I going to go with?" You know, this is what your leadership cast is all about. We've watched the uh, scandal after scandal where public money has gone to firms that are connected to people in the government. It's become so commonplace; it's not even worth mentioning now. When I left the United Kingdom years and years ago, the one thing you could say about it was that British people had a belief that the government was reasonably uncorrupt. I don't think you can say that now. I think that basically we have kind of Southern European levels of corruption that have creeped into the body politic. And when you get that, you get a populist response because nobody trusts the state. So when I look at Boris, I see somebody that encapsulates all of these pathologies, who for six years has been peddling a delusion the delusion that the United Kingdom had the best deal of anybody in the EU. You were one of the big three. You got to write the rules. You got to veto the ones you didn't like. You had this giant financial sector that cleared all their euro transactions, did all their derivatives work, made a ton of money. You got you got free trading access to 60% of your markets. You literally can't have a better deal than this. And that twat David Cameron came along and says, we need to get a better deal. How do you get a better deal than the best deal ever? So for six years, they've been peddling this delusion that we're going to get a better deal. We're going to have dynamic alignment and this and that. And we'll have a border in the Irish Sea, which begs the question why the hell there's an Irish border anywhere near the United Kingdom. But we'll put that to one side. <laughs> All of this comes out and it's just like juggling nonsense for six years. And, and that's where they've got to. So uh, one last thing I'll say about the sort of the, the Scottish move. What also pushed me over is just looking at the polls in terms of demography. If you look at anybody under the age of 50, it's overwhelming majority. And it just gets more and more extreme the further back you go. So I look at it this way. This is priced in. This is going to happen. It's just a question of when. So if you know it's going to happen, the the reasonable thing to do is to do it as well as you can. Now, let's just talk very briefly about the path from here to there. What do you think that's going to look like? It'll be interesting to see if Johnson allows a referendum. My money is on the term of this parliament, no. If Labour comes back in, then you could probably get it. Or alternatively, the Tories really stop caring. One of the interesting things about the this period of British government has been the whole discussion of levelling up the country. And it's quite clear when they're talking about that, the imagination stops at a line that runs from Liverpool to Sheffield. Yes, that's the country. Yes. Right? They simply, Scotland is not part of the consciousness unless we annoy them. Right? That, that's basically it. So in a sense, cognitively, I think that the Conservative Party is no longer the Conservative and Unionist Party. Look at the way they've treated Northern Ireland. I mean, come on, that's pretty much it. Unionism? Aye, good luck with that one, mate, right? So cognitively, I think the break's already there. 
So within five to ten years, there will be a referendum. I think that this time it will pass. And then the question is, what are the ideas, the people, the skills, the talent, the plans that you got lying around for that contingency? That's the important work that needs to be done over the next three to five years. And do you think the SNP are focused on that now? Or do you think there's still a bit, and this is a very... It's a very critical question, Mark. Is, do you think there still might be a bit of the, as you say, the kilt and the fucking bannock burn and all that sort of stuff? And I'm sure, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there is. I mean, you got to remember, it's not as if I'm working as an official SNP appointee. I mean, essentially, I'm, I'm outing myself on Twitter, right? You know, I'm not heavily involved in top-level party discussions. I'm just talking about how I think about this stuff. So, you know, I'm sure that that's there. But at the same time, I don't know. It just seems to me that the whole sort of singing shortbread tins and sort of, you know, conservative unionism has just died to death. Yes. And that it's was very, that was the sort of the yeah. image we had of Scotland. One image, like one image we had of Scotland was West of Scotland, the Ouija's, Rangers Celtic, all that, all that stuff. And then the other one was that that sort of very stern, as you'd say, conservative unionist mm-hmm. Scotland, shortbread, invented kilts, all that malarkey. Yes, all that malarkey. And that's you think that Scotland's going. I think it's generational. I mean, I just don't see that resonating with 21st century millennial Scots. I just, you know, it didn't with me. I mean, Christ, I'm I'm in my mid-50s and I used to hate that shit. So, you know, I, I'm quite, I just don't see, you know, that many people wrapping themselves in a giant piece of kilt and, and running around the streets. Maybe they do. I don't know. I don't live there. But if that's the case, then you're not going to become Denmark. You're going to become a fucking theme park. I think I might leave it there. <laughs> Mark, my man, extraordinary. I always good. I just think Scot- Scottish nationalism. That's. I had no idea where we're going there. It's the beauty of the neither, podcast. Neither, neither did I. I didn't either. I mean, really, no, but it's, I just, it's it's. I just, it's I, I just outed myself on Twitter one morning, and then I had to own it. Yeah, well, that's. But the great thing is, I, say, I come back to it, Mark. This is the thing: is that sovereignty is fucking liberating. Yeah. You said it actually ages ago, and I quote you on this one. Never discount the value in being able to fuck up on your own. Precisely. Because you learn. Because you learn, absolutely. And if you don't have that, then, you know, I mean, it just hit me one day that sort of, you know, Britain is the world's worst UBI experiment. UBI? Uh, Universal basic income. Of course. That is, I I like that one. Well, Because everybody lives off an unconditional transfer, right? That's it. That's all there is. No, it's true, and when I when I when I hear it up up north, you know, uh, the 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 both all both sides in 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 Northern Ireland, but particularly unionists. I mean, as you said, it's just a plea for the dough. Ah, it totally is, and that that and it's got to be more than that. I mean, you, you, you I mean, re- raising your children in an environment where that's the norm. Yeah. You know, how do you expect them to have any sort of like ambition or drive if the whole country is basically living on it? Literally, your country is a door recipient. What's that all about? Just one last question, Scotland, before we go. What is the risk that the Scottish Nats do the oil thing? They do the, you know what? We have some oil Let's here. Let's double down. Let's yeah. double down on oil for the next five years. Let's bang up a massive welfare state and let's see how we go. I guess there's always that risk, but the, it's funny you should uh, mention that. So I've got a podcast at the centre I run here at, in, at Brown University, and I just had somebody on called uh, Thea Rio Francos, and she did this great book about Ecuador. So a fascinating story about Ecuador with the Korea administration. So the left comes in and does everything that every lefty activist dreams of. 
we're going to rewrite the whole constitution. We're going to give land rights to the indigenous. We're going to make nature a fucking thing that has rights, right? Boom, leftiest thing ever, right? But how are they going to pay for this? Oil. So what happens is the coalition begins to fracture because basically all the indigenous people are like, this is the same shit as ever. This is conquistadors. This is 500 years of extraction. This is not what we signed up for. I think there's a way in which that's parallel to places like Scotland now. We're aware of the climate emergency. We're aware of the need for a carbon transition. And the great thing about small countries is they really can lead on this shit. In terms of global reductions, Scotland and Ireland going to zero means nothing. But in terms of the demonstration effect, it's incredibly important. And I think that basically younger Scots in particular, the ones who will fully, full-throatedly vote for independence, are absolutely on that, on that mission. And so I think that the idea that they could say, right now we're going to double down on carbon assets while talking a good game about being green, it's not possible. It's just too far. Fair enough. Listen, Mark, I will see you back in this neck of the woods at some stage. As always. You certainly will. Always a pleasure, Talk my man. Dorky is happening. Dorky is happening. Eric and I are going to do our book launch a year late. No better place. Dorky, <laughs> third weekend of June 2021. We will, we will be there. See you, Mark. He's a very funny man. Ah, he's great. He's <laughs> a total hoot. Brilliant. So, come here. The, the stuff he's talking about is fascinating. Yeah. Again, actually, harken back to what Tommy was asking at the beginning of the show. What's the time frame on this? Do you reckon? Again, it's we're back to this idea. I mean, it's it's, it's events. Who knows what's going to happen? But it's clear. Look, the momentum is behind the Scottish national movement, and Brexit gives them yet another reason to disentangle from England. Yeah. And now Mark managed, and I thought it was very, very well done, to take that cultural yearning to be independent and also look at the failings of the British economic model, this idea of the rentier class. Mm. Fascinating that's, stuff. A, that's a really get, interesting I think angle. We should get more into that sometime in the future because it is, it is very interesting. Now, then the question is, number one, in Ireland, how much of that rentier economy do we have? Yeah. Okay, but maybe we park that. The second thing is, what are the political ramifications of Scottish independence For in an already fragile Northern Ireland. Okay? Right, sorry, I talked over you there. So, 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 so the immediate question is, what are the political ramifications of that Scottish independence move, which could happen in the next five, ten years? Yeah. Definitely ten. Yeah, yeah. But maybe five. Uh, for Northern Ireland, for Ireland in general. Yeah, so let's get into this. What are the ramifications for, for Ireland, Northern Ireland, the unification of Ireland? You well, know. That's, the, that's the big question. I mean, obviously the DUP, I mean, you know, uh, we've said it before, but the DUP is the political party that never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> and they've done it again, right? Uh, they have unsettled. So if you think about the North, right? First thing, difference between Scotland is the Good Friday Agreement has a clause in it that triggers a referendum. Okay. Yes. So yeah. they don't have to wait for London. That's quite interesting, right? Yeah. And that clause is if the British Foreign Secretary or Northern Irish Secretary believes that the conditions have changed in such a way as to require a referendum. Big, big open question, right? It still requires permission from England, but I'd say almost 90% of English people say, go, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then what do we do? That's our campaigning for yeah, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So what do we do? So that's the first thing, right? So two things are going on. One is Scottish nationalism, Brexit, etc. Changing the political background noise profoundly. Mm. The second thing is, we've spoken about before, is demographics in Northern Ireland are moving towards, not relentlessly, but towards a nationalist majority. Okay? And the third thing 
is the extent to which an unhinged, fragile Britain is attractive anymore for middle ground unionists who say, hold on a second, that country that we were once part of, i.e. the United Kingdom, has yeah. gone, it's disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Okay. England is going off on its own. We've got to do a deal here, right? So there's three or four things going on at the same time. The first thing is Scottish nationalism changes profoundly the relationship between Scotland and Northern Ireland. Because mm. if, you, if you ever go to a Northern Irish wedding, if you go to a Northern Irish Presbyterian wedding, yeah, <laughs> it's an amazing thing. They all wear kilts. Right, right, like, yeah, yeah. They like, kind of want to be Scots, you know? And like, <laughs> and in their head, fucking Antrim is like Erzatz Ayrshire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, What's that? Okay, so Erzatz was this this expression <laughs> that the Israelis use for the West Bank. Erzatz Israel means greater Israel. Right, okay, okay? right, right. It's a, it's, a, it's a Yiddish from the German, Erzatz. Yeah. It was a greater Germany idea. Right, right? okay. <laughs> so Erzatz Ayrshire is right, what some Northern Irish Presbyterians regard Antrim to be. It's basically a part of Scotland, right. greater Scotland, right? And in actual fact, there's a school in the north, a Protestant school called Dalriada, and Dalriada was a kingdom of Scotland and Northern Ireland in the oh. pre-Viking years. Oh, really? Right? Yeah, so there's all that stuff going on. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay, but there's always been a default position amongst mainly Presbyterians in the north, that Scotland is their mothership, right? Mm. That Scotland is their place. That's where we came from. Etc. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you think about that, right, that's predicated on Scotland being an orange, yeah, state number yeah. one, and number two being a unionist state. Okay, the sort of conservative unionists, the sort of people you see at Murrayfield, yeah, who kind of speak like English people, but they're actually Scottish, yeah, yeah kind of yeah, posh yeah. Scots, right? Yeah. Okay, but what Mark is looking at is Scottish nationalism is a much more LGBT friendly, much more outlooking, much more left of centre, much more cosmopolitan. It's a new country yeah. that's emerging, right? And that new country is not orange in the sense. Yeah, they might for in actual fact, in fairness, the Rangers are doing very well. Right. right? <laughs> Give myself, right? The Jers, the Jers are doing well, right? Because you know, I've family up in Scotland and all yeah, that sort yeah, of carry yeah. on, right? So those Scots, no, sorry, those Northern Irish Presbyterians who used to default to the fact that they were part of Erzatz Scotland, <laughs> Ayrshire, as I say, because yeah. it's the big empty bit below Glasgow, yeah, yeah. Right, looking at Larne, right? <laughs> okay. Now we're seeing a new Scotland saying, you guys, sectarian, backward, you know, banging the drums. That's not what we're about anymore. We're about new Scotland. So the sense of isolation amongst the Northern... Well, I was going to say, yeah, isolation going to be, is the word. Yeah, it's, yeah. Going to be, it's going to be elevated, profoundly elevated yeah. by what happens in Scotland. Okay. And there's no love lost between the Northerners and the English as a cultural link. Yeah. Very, very little, right? It's a mm. Scottish thing. But if the Scots turn their back and think about the Scots, the last thing the Scots want to be doing if they go independent is bogged down in some sort of culture war in Ireland, right? Yeah. Because they've got their own stuff to sort out. Yeah. They don't want to be stuck in the past it, with the Orange it's also, Lodge. It's also people like Mark will be making the decisions. Those type of Scots. Yeah. You know, educated forward-looking, clever people making the decisions. So then what, what does it leave us in the North? It's, it's actually very interesting. It's all like, if you think about what's going on, it's, it's, it's almost like we're back in the 17th century, right? Mm -mm. These big culture wars in England and movements. So if you think the 17th century is the time of plantation, right? Right, yeah. When yeah. the Scottish people came to, to, to Northern Ireland. Mm. Long, long, 400 years ago. The, the descendants of those people are now only the majority in two 
of the 32 counties of Ireland. Right? Right, yeah. So it's basically Antrim and parts of North Down, okay? And Belfast City itself. And then there's a smattering of people around west of the bank, but not that many. Yeah. Some in Enniskill and more farming communities in Enniskill, right? So they're going to have to figure out where do we lie in all this. But we are also going to figure out how do we make them welcome? How do we fig- How do we say to people whose self-identity has always been, whatever we are, we're not like those people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How do we say, well, we're going to try and turn Antrim into Kerry, right? Okay. Think about it. Go so on, Antrim yeah, yeah. will become as Irish as Kerry is, yeah. right? That has to be your mental map. At what stage does a county like Antrim and North Down and, and maybe parts of Armagh become regarded in our mental map as being the same from the same country. That's yeah. a, it's a big jump, right? That's a massive jump and it's a massive attitude change, not just from the the, the Nordy side, but from our side. Exactly. You know, the Shinners and, you know, there's a huge uh, uh, cohort um, that seems to be building the in, in Ireland that are all the kind of going back to patriotism and all that kind of stuff. And there's, all, there's, all, there's all that up the ra stuff is going on, right? Yeah, yeah. So what, what we've got to do is somebody's got to say, hold on a second, no one political party can own the Irish flag, right? Mm. It's all of us together, Yeah. right? And then we've got to figure out what do we do in advance of this? And this is why I think the economy is important. Up until now, there's been all this talk about, you know, there's this talk of the United Ireland, there's aspirational, I call them five-point provosts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was another point, not the round, right? <laughs> but why don't we change it? Think about like an infrastructural plan for Ireland, building railway networks between Belfast and Cork, having taking the French TGV model, yeah. building links between us and them, right? Because if you look at that United Ireland we're talking about, half the people, half the people in Ireland will live in a sliver of land between Bray and Balamina. Think about that, right? Yeah. Because the Dublin Belfast conurbation is by far and away the most populous part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. So to, in order to figure this out, so Dublin and Belfast together, so the, the east part of the country will contain at least half the people, right? Yeah. And if you look at the mental map, you just go a bit further north to Balamina, a bit further south to Bray, and that will be the most urban population. So what are we going to do? We've got to build a huge amount of infrastructure to deal with this population. Yeah. We also have got to look west and say from Derry all the way down to Cork, we've got to make that region a livable, dynamic, technologically savvy region. Yeah, yeah. So again, we've got to build links. Now, this is what we've got to do. Then we talk about the monetary system at the moment, how it is, back to the EIB, back to the ECB. How do we plan all these things? So that's the first thing, the economics, right? The second thing then is... How do we make unionist people feel welcome here? Yeah, that all makes sense. So how do we do that? Well, like you apart can take, from you can fr- take you can take my approach, which is to marry one of them. Yeah, okay. yeah, that, that, that works, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's uh no, I think that you know, if you look at right, the third decade of the 20th century was unbelievably convulsive for Ireland. Very little suggests to me that the third decade of the 21st century won't be equally as convulsive. Mm. So think about what happened. You know, the partition of the yeah, country, yeah yeah, 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 all that stuff, right? Now, because of what's happened in Scotland, because of what's happened in demography, because of what's happened in the economy, etc., this country is going to change profoundly. Now, we in the South need to try and figure out 
what we're going to do. And I think, as I said, big infrastructural change at least gives people a sense this is a serious project. But we need to start laying the, the kind of groundwork now, actually, because yeah. it is the, like time frame. We talked about time frame before. It is going to take a while. It could change quickly in the end, but it's laying that kind of groundwork, that kind of soft, soft power, as you talked about yeah, before. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, the unionism needs a de Klerk. You remember F.W. de Klerk? Yeah, I do, yeah. It needs somebody to say, okay, the writing is now definitely on the wall. Mm. We are only a majority. There's nobody like that, though. Like, and, and, and to tell them we're a majority in only two of the 32 counties of this country mm. and to say, okay, what do we do? How do we become relevant in the future because the British project is imploding. How do we become part of this country? What do we do now? I happen to believe that the country that most represents success when countries are ethnically divided is Switzerland. So mm. you've got three, think of Switzerland, you've got three very distinct cultures. So you have Italian, German and French. Yeah. And then you have a tiny language called Romansh, which is an ethnic Swiss language. Yeah. Right? Had the Swiss, for centuries, they said, okay, the way in which we keep the Germans and French and Italians together, who actually don't like each other, right, mm. is we federalize everything to the very local level, this direct democracy. So basically you take away the idea. The one thing I love about Switzerland is nobody has a clue who the Swiss prime minister is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Now, and and they've, a re- they've a referendum every week. Every almost. week, <laughs> yeah. But that's all called direct democracy. So what it means is that every area runs its own shop really well. So what happens in Ireland is the Republic of Ireland is a highly centralised model, right? Mm. So all taxes are paid into the government and then the government gives yeah. it out, right? Dishes, uh, right? Yeah. So there's or not. No, or not, but there's no autonomy. So here in Dunleary, for example, if people wanted to say, well, I think we're going to have to build this and that and the other, they have to go through a politician who has to go through the Doyle, who has to go through the Department of Finance. Yeah. And it makes economic decisions more and more remote. That's one problem. But the other problem, John, is it makes the parliament more and more sovereign and stronger, right? Now, if you're trying to persuade people from Antrim to come on board into a national project, Mm. you can't say, and you're going to be ruled by a bunch of nationalists from Dublin. You've got to say, what we're going to do is we're going to recreate, like the Swiss, a worldview that you in Antrim or Armagh or Belfast or whatever it is, okay, you take most of the decisions. So you raise your own taxes. Yeah. You figure out your own stuff. A devolution of sorts. Exactly. But a hyper-devolution. Right. Hyper-devolution. So hyper-federalism. So what you do is you take, you take the sting out of it. Yeah. Because what you've got to say to unionists is you didn't lose. The yeah. problem in Ireland... This feels like a tall order, though. No, but I mean, tall orders, as we said, yeah. you, you have to start ventilating We have these, to do, yeah, yeah. You have yeah, to yeah. these ideas at the beginning, right? So if you say to unionist people, you lost and we won, right? Mm. That is a recipe for chaos. But if you say, look, we all win here, right? Yeah. We're going to give away lots of our sovereignty, the flag, the national anthem, the parliament, the Doyle. We're going to recreate the whole thing and we're going to give power to you. So we're going to say, we're going to replicate the Swiss model here, Mm. right? Then for the vast majority, not for the vast, for a majority of unionist people, this is, okay, we're kind of in control still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to genuflect to Dublin still. You know, the Catholics didn't win. This is because this is their yeah. big fear. And you basically say, you're welcome, your property rights, everything is respected. We have a constitutional court that every citizen has the right to go to, like the Germans created after the Second World War mm-hmm. in, in Karlsruhe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We create this totally devolved federalist system. 
And what the whole point on Johnston is to try and reduce the anxieties. It's, I think somebody once said that the role of the politician is to understand the anxieties of the people and do something about it, Yeah. right? Yeah. So what you've got to say to unionist folk, and I know them really well, is like, this is not a threat. And look at what's happening across the water in Scotland. They don't want you anymore, yeah. right? That's sort of what I would call shortbread and tartan Scot- <laughs> Scottish approach, right? Okay. Which is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both invented, by the way. Tartan and shortbread were inventions of the Victorians. Don't tell Scottish people that. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, it's a, it's an invention. Tartan. Tartan. Certain clans had a tartan, but yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't that every clan had a tartan. That's a, that's right, that's right, a manufactured right. concept. Yeah. It's a very good marketing ploy. Not a bad one. Yeah. Very good. And of course, shortbread. You think is all Scottish was made up by the Victorians. Yeah. Right. But you've got to say to the Northerners, like, they don't want you. England's gone off on its own weird place, and they don't want you. Yeah. We want you. Yeah. And the funniest thing is. You can't force people to love you. We know that from life. So you've got to create the conditions where they mightn't love you, but they're not repelled by you. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the beginning. And, and I think it's all doable. But the most important thing, John, is Brexit has kicked off these issues and this process of events that is leading in one way, which is the independence of Scotland and a massive change to the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. And if we stick our head in the sand and say either it's not going to happen or it's going to happen on our watch in the way that yeah. De Valera and Pierce wanted, a Republican Ireland where they're beaten, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. So what we've got to do now is recreate the entire architecture in our heads of what the country could look like. And frankly, Switzerland isn't a bad model. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mac, we were going to talk about tech, big tech, oh, yeah. the, but let's keep that for next week. I think you're absolutely right. Huge issue is the bonanza in Silicon Valley. Now, just to put our finger on it, Ireland has made a massive bet on Silicon Valley. Like we really have. Yeah. The Irish yeah, economic yeah. gamble is on Silicon Valley. So we've all got a stake in that conversation and we'll have it on Tuesday. Great. Looking forward to it. I know you're sitting there 
worried about what you're going to give that person you love for Christmas. Give them the gift of knowledge. With the Dave McWilliams podcast, we're going to give you, for December only, a full year's membership with a 20% discount. So, for that person you love, who loves economics, loves learning, loves the crack, loves all this carry-on, Dave McWilliams podcast, Christmas special present, patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.